Good morning. My name is Shannon, and I am a sinner. And I say that not because um, this past week has been any more sinful than my usual uh, sinful week, uh, but because that's the way uh, many 12-step programs begin their meetings, with those who speak introducing themselves in that way. And we are a community as the church of uh, sinners needing salvation that comes through the Lord. We are not so much saints as we are sinners being redeemed by the Lord Jesus and through his cross. I say it also because uh, just remembering a couple of weeks ago when we were reminded in our study of the Gospel of Mark about how Levi uh, was known in his time and his culture and among his people as a grievous sinner. Uh, He was a tax collector. He he hung out with the sinners and Jesus uh, welcomed and loved him. I also say that this morning because uh, in a little while we will come to the communion table behind us and we come to that table always as sinful and broken people. We come not uh, with our own merits in mind or because of our own goodness, but because we are sinners and we need a Savior. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, as we have sung and uh, listened to Gladys, uh, we have been inclined toward you. Uh, May you continue to be worshipped as we open your word together. May you continue to be glorified. Give us eyes that are good to see and hearts that are good and fertile soil to receive your word. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate or are inconsistent in any way with your word, may they be passed over, forgotten. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a confession this morning, uh, the month of December remains a confusing time for me. And this happens every year, and I know it's coming, and still it sort of surprises me. Uh, December, the earlier part of December, is a confusing time for me. Once the Thanksgiving meal is eaten, and the dishes are done, and maybe a game is played, some good conversation had by those around the table or in the house, maybe a football game watched, I begin to think of the lights that will go up on the front of the house of the tree and our imminent trip to Lucky or Home Depot to buy a tree. I begin to think of the boxes that are up in the loft in the garage that will come down with all of the ornaments and decorations and candles and wreaths and uh, all sorts of other things, the stockings and all of the things that will follow. All of these things, the nativity scene, the wreaths, are are what we do. They're what our culture, uh, for the most part, does. They are what I and my family did growing up. That is, uh, they are what I and my family now continue to do. And my confusion lies in the juxtaposition of a couple of things, or the overlap, or the blending, or the mixing of Christmas and Christianity. Christmas is Christmas trees, Christmas lights, candles, tinsel, holly, poinsettias, mistletoe, gifts, fruitcake, cookies, candy canes, gingerbread men, gingerbread houses, a stable, Mary, Joseph, a baby, angels, shepherds, elves, Santa Claus, stockings, reindeer, Rudolph, Frosty, the Grinch, sleds, sleighs, eggnog, bells, Miracle on 34th Street, It's a Wonderful Life, Charlie Brown Christmas, and Jesus. 
And the whole Christmas industrial complex brought to you by the makers of Black Friday and Cyber Monday and Amazon and Hillsdale Mall. All of that includes, encompasses, encapsulates, makes up what is in our worlds, in our culture, in our minds, Christmas. And I sometimes struggle at this time of year to distinguish between the two because they get so intertwined, both outwardly and inwardly. Christmas or Christmas and Christianity or life in Christ or following Jesus. And the two are these big, two important things that are an active part of our lives and they are all mushed together and blended together in this wonderful but sometimes confusing way. And so I struggle at this time of year to distinguish between the two that got so intertwined both outwardly and inwardly in my life, my heart, my mind, my spirit. And in the midst of Advent or the run-up to Christmas starting at Thanksgiving and for some earlier than that, I continue to wonder what is Christmas and what is Christianity. And the passage before us this morning in the Gospel of Mark, as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark, kind of answers some of these questions in some ways, or at least addresses a similar issue, which we'll read about now. Beginning at Mark chapter 2, verse 23, listen closely, follow along as I read, this is the Word of God. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along with him, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered, David entered the house of God, the tabernacle at that point, and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions, his men, his soldiers. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Most religions have things, locations, that make them important. Hinduism has the Ganges River. Islam has Mecca. Shintoism has the whole island of Japan. Judaism has Jerusalem. And most religions have characteristics or facets or practices that distinguish or set apart their religion, that religion from other religions or that things that are unique that make them distinct for one reason or another. For Judaism, one of those many things, one of those practices was fasting. 
We read that passage last week, John did, and John talked, preached about all of the ways that fasting had become important in Jewish life, first from a reference to it in the Old Testament, really one reference that ballooned and expanded all the way to the point that fasting became a very common part of Jewish life, with Jewish people regularly fasting every Monday and every Thursday. It was that passage last week in Mark's Gospel, verses 18 to 22, was the beginning of a series of conflicts that Jesus would have with the scribes of the Pharisees, with the leaders or teachers of the law, specifically of the Pharisee party. Jesus' disciples were not fasting as the traditions and customs of the scribes of the Pharisees indicated that they should. They were more celebrative than mourning. They didn't fast like they were supposed to. Never mind that the only fasting required of Jewish people was, as John noted last Sunday, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, mentioned in chapter 16 of the book of Leviticus. Nevertheless, Pharisees prided themselves on their fasting. They prided themselves on their knowledge of the Scriptures, and they're putting into practice, to the letter of the law, all of the Scripture that they possibly could. And yet the practice of their faith and therefore their lives was not built only on the things of Scripture, but also on innumerable interpretations and expounding and additions to the law of Moses, which were eventually compiled into what we call today, or what has been called, what was been called, and still is, the Mishnah. Let's say that together. Mishnah. I can't hear you at home. Say it a little louder. Mishnah. And the Mishnah was made up of two parts, the first of which is called the Talmud. Let's say that together the Talmud, and the second part being the Gemara. Let's say that, Gemara. And probably the two biggest things that were distinguished in the Mishnah and the Talmud and the Gemara about Jewish life that distinguished them, that set them apart from others and from other religious practices were two things. Circumcision first, and then adhering to the Sabbath. Circumcision was a very unique practice back in that day, in the ancient days, in the time of Israel and the Jews. But arguably the biggest one of these things was the Sabbath, at least partly or largely because it was one of the big ten, the big ten commandments. It was the longest, if you go back to Exodus 20 and read, the longest of the ten commandments. And it was the only one of the ten commandments that was grounded in creation. And so uh, theologians and biblical scholars sort of give greater weight to things that are grounded in creation, grounded in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, grounded in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, grounded especially in chapter 1 of Genesis, which is where we first read of the Sabbath. From Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. This is the Ten Commandments. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor daughter nor your male or female servant nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For, the next, for, the, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The command to remember the Sabbath, which literally means Sabbath, literally means to cease 
or to stop or to take a break. The commander, remember the Sabbath, had in many ways become the focal point of the practice of the Jewish faith or the central identifying characteristic of their life with God and especially of those who took the practice of faith most seriously, which in Jesus' day were the Pharisees. In fact, in his voluminous commentaries on the Gospel of Matthew, the New Testament scholar Frederick Dale Bruner refers to, translates Pharisees as the serious, with a capital S, rather than the Pharisees, because they were the serious ones about the Scriptures, about obeying the law, and about their faith at that time. And in their earnest but misguided attempt to more faithfully live out their faith and adhere to the Scriptures and obey the law of Moses, all good things, and wanting to know exactly what they looked like and being more inclined to raise the bar than lower it, the Pharisees added to and filled out what remembering the Sabbath day looked like. They got very specific about what not working on the Sabbath meant, so much so that they eventually got off base, got off track, got off target. They literally added not dozens, but hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules and laws and guidelines and commands to the basic fourth commandment of the Big Ten. They made rules about what defined work, what defined labor, and what did not. And they raised the bar really high. A person could only walk 1,999 steps on the Sabbath. The 2,000th step for a person meant they're breaking the law and becoming unclean. A person couldn't carry a child, couldn't help an animal that was giving birth on the Sabbath, couldn't rescue an animal that had fallen into a pit on the Sabbath. They couldn't tie or untie laces or knots They couldn't write letters, and I'm not talking about uh, letters that go in an envelope, but a single letter. One letter was permissible, two was too many, and constituted work, according to the Talmud, according to this extra-biblical set of laws that they not only contributed to, but sought to live by. All in order to keep the Sabbath holy, to not work but to only rest. And while to us who have maybe felt too much freedom from the fourth commandment, who may not take God's command to remember the Sabbath seriously enough, the first century Pharisees lived by this stuff. It was, and for some Jews still is, a core and essential element of the practice of their faith. And one of the ways they have for thousands of years remained distinct or set apart or holy for the people around them or from the people around them, set apart for God, set apart to God. So uh, important was this to their identity of who they were as a people and in their relationship with God, keeping Sabbath. And then along comes Rabbi Jesus. And one can easily see now in retrospect how Jesus, whom Mark identifies as Messiah and Son of God, chapter 1, verse 1, and who continually now through Mark's gospel has exhibited and claimed authority in preaching and authority over demons and authority over the human body, 
authority over disease, authority to forgive sins, and now is presuming to have authority over the scriptures and their laws and their writings and their practices and their customs and their traditions and the way that they lived out their faith. Along comes Jesus not only offending their religious sensibilities, but also threatening their very way of life by not following their rules. So that by the end of these two Sabbath day encounters, the Pharisees and the Herodians, who are rarely mentioned in the Scriptures, nowhere else besides the Gospels, and nowhere else in antiquity, and who otherwise had little in common with the Pharisees, both wanted to kill Jesus. Verse 6 of chapter 3. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, the Herodians who were in bed with Rome, how they might kill Jesus. Which is the first explicit reference in Mark's gospel to the climactic event in Mark's gospel, which is which everything is moving toward Jesus' death, Jesus' crucifixion at the hands of not only the Romans, but also of his own people, the Jewish religious establishment, his death by which and through which God would set his people free, set his people free from the condemnation of sin and the penalty of sin. And so it's no wonder that Mark includes here in his gospel not one but two interactions with Jesus about Sabbath. It's not so important to us keeping Sabbath, but it was incredibly important and central to the Jewish faith of Jesus' day. Jesus' different way with regard to the Sabbath specifically and religion as a whole was a part of what eventually gets Jesus killed. Now let's dig just a little deeper. Verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? It was the seventh day of the week. Jesus and his disciples were going somewhere. It was not out of the ordinary for them to be walking through fields. Roads and paths ran through fields. Fields were planted around roads. And it was not out of the ordinary. In fact, it was permissible, according to the Old Testament, for passers-by to grab a head of grain, to snack, not to collect a whole bunch and carry it off, but just to grab a bit if they were hungry. That was permissible. That was legal. But rubbing it together between one's fingers was considered by the law lovers to be harvesting and winnowing and work. The unheading of grain was considered harvesting, winnowing, work by these who were most adamant about the fourth commandment, Sabbath keeping. And the Pharisees had been watching Jesus, following him around. They'd been under, they'd had him under not so secret, not so subtle surveillance for a long time now. Probably since he preached with authority at that synagogue in Capernaum back in chapter 1, when he spoke, preached, taught with more authority than their scribes, their Pharisees, their teachers of the law, they must have felt threatened by Jesus. And so they watched, and so they stalked him, and so they surveilled him, and then they had the opportunity to speak. Look, Jesus, why are your disciples doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And in good rabbinic form, Jesus answers their question with a question. Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? 
to the Bible experts, Jesus says, hey, fellas, haven't you read your Bible? Hey, guys, don't you remember what's in the Bible? And then Jesus reminds them about a time recorded in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21 where David, the highly esteemed David, who would become Israel's greatest king, is out wandering around being tracked down by King Saul. And he's got his little band of men and they are hungry and they end up at the tabernacle or tent with nothing to eat but hungry there. And there are the loaves, the five loaves that have been sitting on the table and now removed from the holy table as they were every week replaced. But for the priest and maybe the priest's family to eat. Bread that was set apart. The bread of the presence, also known as the showbread. And David says, can we have some of that bread? And the priest says, have you remained clean? And David says, we have. Whether they had or hadn't, David said they had. And they eat the bread that was consecrated for something else. And Jesus references this, noting that David and his men were hungry. And his point was, mercy triumphs over religion. Mercy triumphs over religion. Then Jesus said to them, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, which was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself, so the Son of Man is Lord, in other words, has authority even on the Sabbath or even over the Sabbath. Speaking with his authority as Messiah and Son of God, Jesus declares that he has authority over even the Sabbath, which again would have been a disruptively offensive and audacious claim that people would consider killing Jesus over or about. But Jesus was ushering in this new kingdom, a new way in which relief was more important than religion, compassion more important than customs, relationships more important than rules, life more important than laws. To the consternation of the good, law-abiding, upright, tradition-loving Pharisees. Are you with me? Verse 1. Another time Jesus went to the synagogue, maybe the same day, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if Jesus would heal that man on the Sabbath. They suspected. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Jesus is no longer hiding. He's out in the open. He wants people to see. This is not a trick. This is not magic. The man with the shriveled hand is on display. And Jesus wants everyone to know about his new way, about a kingdom, about a disruption of religion and rules and laws simply for the sake of laws and appeasing or maybe pleasing God by strict obedience to such. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? And they know all of the laws, the biblical ones, the Torah, the laws of Moses, and all of the others that have been written better than anyone else. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? 
to save life or to kill. And the most condemning words in this passage, but they remained silent. They had nothing to say, no words to speak. Jesus looked around at them in anger. This is the only place in the Bible, the only place in the gospel is the only place in the gospel of Mark where Jesus is described as angry. Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, various ways of translating that, hardened hearts in the Old Testament. Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. There on the scene, on the spot. It wasn't days later. He didn't slowly get better. It all happened right there in front of everyone. He was healed. He was restored. The stigma that may have been attached to him was gone. The Sabbath is a gift, not a curse. In a few minutes, we'll come to this table in this 11th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus is recorded in saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. A different kind of rest. And scholars think that the kind of burden that Jesus was talking about then and there was the burden of trying to keep every jot and tittle, every line of the, not just the law of Moses, but all of the laws that had grown up around the law of Moses in the Mishnah, in the Talmud, etc. We, if, if you're like me, find uh, religion to be doable. Some of us try to work our way into God's pleasure. We think we can be good enough by following the rules, doing religion, doing what we're supposed to do. It's hard to know exactly what that looks like for each one of us. In Christianity, it might look like going to church or dressing the right way or being appropriate or following this or that or tithing in a strictly legalistic way, though maybe that's just a floor, not a ceiling. Jesus meddles with their religion. Jesus disrupts their religion. Jesus is the insurrectionist in the story. He's the revolutionary one. And he messes with their religion because he wants them to get beyond religion to their maker who loves them. Sometimes we get hooked into religion as well. I do. And maybe some people, particularly around this time of year, don't mess with my, you can fill in your own blank, don't mess with my way of doing things. Don't mess with my traditions. Don't mess with my, Christian, my Christmas traditions, my tr Christmas customs. Don't mess with my poinsettias or my advent wreath or my candles or my whatever. 
And those things can be good. They are good and wonderful. But when we make the accoutrements of religion more important than the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the kindness of God, the desire for God to see stomachs fed, the homeless sheltered, those without clothes clothed, then we miss the point. Jesus was meddling in their religion and meddling with their faith, but he was doing so with a purpose. He was doing so with a mission. When we practice our religion while people go hungry, we, like the Pharisees, have missed the boat. When we practice our religion and ignore those who need healing, like the man with the withered hand, we have missed the boat. We have missed the grace of God. We have missed His kingdom. But His kingdom is available to us. It is imminent. It is here He came proclaiming. And His kingdom is about love rather than law. His kingdom is about grace and mercy. His kingdom is about a growing mountain of jackets for children in the church office. His kingdom is about feeding those who are hungry, those who are now without jobs in our community. The Sabbath was made for man. Take a rest. Get some rest as you need it. Not man for the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He has the power and the authority to redefine what religion is like. And Jesus came to set people free. And most of all, people who were bound up. To bring to sinners one who would forgive. To, give, to bring to the lame a doctor or a physician. I read a story this week about a church in Illinois who during the winter and during COVID, just a couple of weeks ago, took their very sacred sanctuary that was always clean and very nicely decorated and just totally handed it over to the homeless and the poor who were outside freezing, susceptible to the virus. I don't know what Jesus' message in this passage looks like for you or for me or for us. But it is a message of hope. It is a message of freedom. It is a message of a new way of understanding God and a new way of understanding life with God. It is holy good news, though I can't fully grasp it because I haven't lived in the strictures of strict Sabbatarianism. We more often have disregarded God's call to a day of rest, to a time of rest, to seasons of rest unto the Lord and for our own refreshment and well-being and to doing good for others. I love the motto or the phrase or the tagline of the Salvation Army, doing the most good. 
however we live out our faith. On Sundays, throughout the week, may doing good be at the top rather than doing religion. And then I believe we will see God's kingdom come. We don't do good in order to earn God's favor or to please God or to earn our salvation. But we do good because God has laid before us the one who is good, his beloved son, who has died that we might have life, that a new kingdom might come. That kingdom is coming. Right now, during COVID, during Advent, through Christmas, may we see and participate in that kingdom. Let's pray. God, uh, we confess, some of us more than others, me probably more than most, our penchant for religion, for rules, for right and wrong, for doing things the right way to feel better about ourselves, and overlooking your grace, overlooking mercy, overlooking opportunities to bring life into our world, into our community, into one another's lives. Forgive me, forgive us, have mercy upon us, restore us as you restored the man with the withered hand, restore us also to the joy of your salvation, of your kingdom, of what Jesus described as eternity. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, bring glory to yourself, May your glory fill the whole earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so you know, as we've talked about many a times, this table is not for good people. It's for people who know that God is good. It's not for people who come with their own righteousness, but who lean on the righteousness of God and Jesus Christ. We come to this table not because we have loved God, but because God first loved us and called us, claimed us, and welcomes us back into his family through Jesus. To participate in this table when we're here together, uh, one does not need to be a member of the Presbyterian church or any church, but simply to acknowledge one's sin and brokenness and need, one's depravity and one's yearning, and to call out to God for grace, which he eagerly bestows. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said to his disciples, This is my body that's broken for you. Do this, eat this, in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took a cup, and he said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink ye all of it. And the Apostle Paul tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup in this way, together, even through remote connections, we are bound together and we proclaim the Lord's death together, his saving death, until he comes again, which he will, which he is. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, set apart this bread on this table 
and this juice and the bread and the juice in these packets and the bread and the juice in the homes of all who are listening and watching and viewing and participating from various places. Set apart what we have put on a table in front of ourselves and through it, meet us. Through it, open our eyes. Through it, feed us. Through it, unite us over the miles. Unite us, make us one in spirit. Bring your people together and through a unified people, bring glory to yourself. Take delight in your church. May your name in us be praised. Amen.